Good morning, Steve Dale's Pet World on WGN. Are you going away for Thanksgiving? If so, one of the toughest things in the world is to find a pet sitter that you know and trust, or even a dog walker for that matter. We'll talk about that later, but first, I'm so excited to have this conversation because Dr. Shaw, Dr. Kristen Shaw, a pain specialist at Zoetis, has been out there for some time talking about pain that our companion animals feel. And right now, I want to talk about dogs. It has been suggested. Let's bust a myth, Dr. Shaw. Help me do that. It's been suggested even by veterinarians I've seen who are speaking about this stuff. Well, cats mask pain and dogs will always tell you they're in pain. They'll limp, they'll yelp, they'll scream, they'll do all these things. Well, the part about cats, that's true. The part about dogs, I argue, we'll see how you feel about it. That's not true. Dogs often do mask pain as well, I thought. Well, hey, Steve, you are exactly right. That is a huge myth. It's a big misconception. And you're right. It's both veterinarians and dog owners. I think there's the tendency to think that if an animal, whether it's a dog or a cat, is in pain, that they're going to yelp or cry out. And really, it's unlikely for dogs with arthritis to do that. More often, what they're going to do is just change their behavior and change their activity. And these can be sometimes really subtle signs. It can be that they don't want to go for a walk or don't want to go for quite as long of a walk. They lag behind or they hesitate before they jump into the car or just don't want to get up off their bed to greet you when you come home. And the problem is that a lot of people just tend to chalk this up to natural signs of aging when, in fact, their, their dogs are actually suffering from pain and they're hurting. Let's talk about arthritis specifically in dogs or what is called by professionals like yourself, osteoarthritis. So what is osteoarthritis? Osteoarthritis, it's the, the big name for the most common type of arthritis that we're dealing with. We'll often abbreviate it abbreviate it and call it OA. But what it means is that there's usually something that starts the initi- that initiates the process of joint deterioration. And that can be something like hip dysplasia or elbow dysplasia. And those are conditions that dogs are born with, and it means that their joints don't fit together properly. And because of that, there's abnormal forces inside the joint. And those abnormal forces mean that there starts to be some wearing away of the tissues in the joint. This then leads to the release of some inflammatory products and that inflammation can then trigger some pain response and it becomes a vicious cycle where over time, ultimately the primary symptom that we care about with arthritis is actually that pain that is generated from the deteriorating joint. And the confusing part is you always cannot tell, as we talked about, that your dog is in pain in the first place. Let's talk about how common this is. So we're talking about a whole group of dogs that are kind of born that they're uh, predetermined to have this happen if they live long enough at some point in their life. Not necessarily at the age of 14, but much younger than that, actually. So that's, that's one subgroup. But then if we Pile on to that, if you will, all of the dogs, and we're talking about a lot of dogs, about half, that are overweight or obese, and pile on to that, all of the dogs who are simply older, because being old, it turns out, makes you more predetermined, just like in humans, to have arthritis. Now, I threw a lot at you there. Can you talk about that? 
<laughs> yeah, well, Steve, you're exactly right. So the statistic is that about 40% of dogs suffer from clinically relevant arthritis, osteoarthritis, meaning they are suffering from the pain due to arthritis. And we do know there are some predisposing factors. Breed and genetics certainly are big ones. So we can all think about that Labrador or the German Shepherd or Rottweiler, those certain breeds that are the poster children for arthritis. And as you mentioned, being overweight or obese, that is hugely related, pun actually intended. So being overweight contributes to the progression of arthritis and the severity of it. And I do want to clarify, while these signs and symptoms of arthritis become worse as a dog ages, they often start to show changes in those joints and even early signs of pain much, much, much younger, especially those dogs that have developmental orthopedic diseases or things like hip dysplasia and elbow dysplasia. We can often see those dogs have symptoms in the first year or two of their life. Then we'll see those other dogs that maybe tear their ACL, tear their cruciate ligament and their knee joint. That tends to happen more often in the middle-aged dogs. And when that happens, 100% of those dogs will develop arthritis in their knees as they get older. What percent did you say? I want to make a point of this. 40% of dogs. No, no, no. What percent of dogs, because it's really common that have cruciate tears or have knee surgery or orthopedic surgery of any time of any type, what percent of those dogs will have arthritis? 100%. Yeah. We, we know 100% that losing that ACL ligament will lead to arthritis, even if we do surgery. surgery. And I, I'm a surgeon, so I do advocate for surgery. It does slow down that progression and it gives them a better functioning joint. But even with surgery, they're going to have some degree of arthritis in that joint. All right. So everything we talked about, we're talking about a whole lot of dogs added up. Probably more dogs than we ever thought. But there's more! I want to bust one more myth. It had always been thought that small dogs, your chihuahuas of the world, the toy fill-in-the-blank or miniature fill-in-the-blank, those dogs, the Shih Tzus, Pomeranians, all of those dogs, they're not going to have a problem because they weigh so little. Well, first of all, some of them weigh way more than they should, but even those who don't, Because our dogs are living longer and arthritis is due sometimes or related to old age, well, those dogs, it turns out, can be arthritic too, Dr. Shaw? That's absolutely true. And actually, you know, I'll I'll bring up one other breed that we know is now the number one breed in the country, and that's the French Bulldog. Now, they're not our toy breeds per se, but I had a Frenchie who had very bad arthritis in her hips. And so... All of the breeds that you mentioned, Chihuahuas, Pomeranians, Frenchies, all of those those little dogs, they absolutely can have arthritis. They do have arthritis, and we shouldn't be overlooking them um, in terms of diagnosing arthritis and managing their pain. All right, so we talked about the fact that so many dogs, so many, more than we ever thought, turns out to be arthritic. And, and we talked about the fact that dogs don't always tell us. We talked at least somewhat about the signs of pain in dogs, what to look for. The big question is now, what do we do about it? It's been identified. What the heck do we do? Do we throw drugs at the problem and then walk away? Well, I don't know that that's the answer. But what is the answer? We'll find out with Dr. Kristen Shaw when we come back on WGN. Dr. Kristen Shaw is a pain specialist at Zoetis. 
They say that's what I am, too, because I'm a pain in the neck, but that's a whole other thing, Dr. Shaw. Dr. Shaw, you are talking about arthritis, or we're talking about arthritis in dogs and how common that turns out to be. All right, so it turns out to be fairly common, Dr. Shaw. The question is, what do we do about it? Now, unlike cats, dogs have a choice of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications, but if that were the magic bullet... I suspect we wouldn't be having the conversation we're having now in the first place. Yeah, well, you're exactly right. So the the way that we treat or manage arthritis is using a concept that we call multimodal. And really what that means is there's not one single treatment that's going to be able to cure the condition, unfortunately. You know, the, actually the most important thing that we can do aside from treating pain, which we'll, we'll, we will discuss one of the most important aspects is actually making sure that dogs aren't overweight. There's nothing that we can do that can actually change the course of the arthritis process and the pain involved more than making sure that those dogs are at a what we call a lean body condition, so on the skinny side of normal. But once we control their weight, yet we really, well, I should say, as we are making efforts to control their weight, we absolutely have to address their pain. And those non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, NSAIDs, they've been around for about 25 years now in dogs, and they can be very, very effective in a whole lot of dogs. But we all know that there's some potential side effects associated with them. Some dogs don't tolerate them. Most often, they can upset their stomach. Some of them require having blood work that monitor that needs to be monitored. And for that reason, there's a reluctance from veterinarians and dog owners to give their dogs that medication every day, even though even though we know studies show that the dogs that are on non-steroidal anti-inflammatories on a daily basis, long term, actually have better function. They are less what we call lame, or they have less mobility challenges, less pain if they are on it long term. But again, we don't love using these medications as a profession on that regular basis. So we've been looking for new options. Well, and I want to talk about this a little more. So say the dog is six or eight years old, which isn't unusual for the dog to have arthritis, and the dog lives to the age of 10 or 14. Well, you're talking about that dog being on a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug every day of its life. So think about it for yourself. You're taking a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, and some people do, every single day of your life for many, many years. Uh, Well, that's not necessarily the solution that pet parents want, and it's not the solution, I would argue, that's necessarily best for all dogs. So, yes, now new technology has brought us something new, I believe, Dr. Shaw. Yes, we we actually now have the first truly new way to manage arthritis pain that's come along in the last 25 years. And it's it's actually in the form of a monoclonal antibody therapy. So this is an injection that the dog receives at your veterinarian once a month. And that injection is just given underneath the skin through the same size needle that they would get with a vaccine. And this monoclonal antibody is targeting one of the primary drivers of arthritis pain. That's called nerve growth factor. So the monoclonal antibody can bind to that NGF molecule and reduce the the pain signaling that occurs. And 
these monoclonal antibodies, they are proteins. They are naturally big proteins that look just like your dog's own proteins. They get broken down through natural processes throughout the body. So it really doesn't involve the liver or the kidneys. We're not going to see side effects in terms of vomiting or diarrhea. And these proteins just get broken down into smaller proteins that get recycled throughout the body. And as far as the studies show, there's no drug interactions, meaning your dog can be receiving other medications that they may need and still get a monoclonal antibody therapy. Can a dog receive a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug at the same time that it gets what we're talking about? And by the way, the name of the drug coming out is Labrella. That is the drug that you're talking about, the monoclonal antibody. Yes, that's correct. So your question around can dogs receive non-steroidals at the same time as Labrella, this is where, well, a a couple, I I can't give you a, a short, easy answer to this. What I can tell you is, first of all, Labrella has been available in uh, Europe for about two years now. And what we know from our European colleagues is that about 75% of dogs don't need any other form of pain relief when they're on Labrella. So many dogs won't need anything else. Now, can we use NSAIDs at the same time as Labrella? It hasn't been studied. There haven't been long-term studies showing that we can use them together long-term. And so our recommendation right now is if you need to use an NSAID for a few days here or there, and certainly as the dogs are getting started on their labrella, it may be okay to use a, a couple days to a couple weeks of an NSAID, but we don't have any long-term research to show that you can use them together long-term or that you'll really need to. Well, and that's the other thing. So there are other things that can be done, which I'll talk about in a second, Uh, Other forms of therapy. You mentioned way back when, multimodal approach. So I want to talk about some of those other forms of therapy that can be done without a problem with this monoclonal antibody called Labrella. Because now that the dog is pain-free or less painful, the dog is more easily able to do these other things. But before I talk about that, I want to make something clear. So we talked about how many dogs don't tell us that they're hurting, but there are many dogs that do, and their quality of life is so impaired that it can even be a reason for end of life. And with this drug being so quick-acting and so impactful, I, at least in my crystal ball, seeing potentially fewer dogs euthanized. I couldn't agree more. You know, I I always talk to veterinarians and and try and hammer home the point that arthritis is a life-threatening condition. In fact, I've had to put my own dog to sleep because I couldn't manage his pain effectively. Hmm. So we do need to appreciate that we, we don't have the option to do nothing. We don't have the perfect silver bullet out there, but we have to do something to manage that pain. Now, Steve, I do want to make one point. You said that that Labrella is fast acting. I do want to clarify that it's not quite as fast acting as a non-steroidal. So if we are looking for something that we do want to have an effect within hours, that's where our non-steroidals are going to be a better option. We know that these monoclonal antibodies actually take a few weeks to start to build up in the system. And the recommendation is actually to make sure we get two injections that what that after that second injection a month later, that's when the primary benefit really starts to be seen. And thank you for clarifying. I meant fast in a relative term <laughs> because really, you know, but right. I, you know, I mean, people today, though, they want and I do, too, uh, <laughs> instant soup. Right. We all want that for our pets. So I totally understand what you're saying. But thank you for clarifying. But 
We have not, and we will explain what we're talking about with multimodal uh, in a little bit. And we'll talk specifically about some of the things that can be done. But broadly speaking, multimodal means an approach that uses a variety of different therapies. And there are lots of choices now, Dr. Shaw. There are a lot of different choices. And I I think we often want to look for other medications or other things that we can do. But really, the foundation for that multimodal management is, number one, pain relief. Number two, making sure that the dogs are not overweight. And then number three, making sure that they get regular exercise. We know that exercise exercise in itself can have anti-inflammatory effects. It can have pain-relieving effects. All right, but it so also- I'm, I'm going to inter- interrupt you for a moment here <laughs> because I know people – People that are like 80-something years old, and the doctor says, take a walk in the morning. And then that person says, well, it hurts. I can't take a walk in the morning. And the doctor says, well, you'll feel better after you take the walk in the morning. And the person says, I don't believe you. And then the person does it, and the person feels better. Is that the same for dogs? Well, don't answer. Don't answer. No, not yet. (laughs) This is called the radio tease. Now they're going to come back for sure to hear your answer, which they will. Everybody will when we come back here on WGN. Next week, it is our annual salute to the National Dog Show presented by Purina. For 22 years, I think it is, this dog show has been on NBC. The history behind it is fascinating. Uh, For years, NBC played on Thanksgiving Day, Uh, It's a Wonderful Life. And the ratings, poor Jimmy Stewart, were declining. And Donna Reed, nothing wrong with them, but the ratings were like minuscule. And NBC said, and I talked to an exec about uh, with NBC about all this, said we've got to do something. So when the dog show opportunity came along from Purina, they jumped at it. They barked at the opportunity. David Fry is Mr. Dog Show. If there's a major dog show to announce, he's the guy. And they chose John O'Hurley, you know, from Seinfeld, Peterman, for example, as one of the many roles he's played on television. And they've been a partnership for 22 years. We'll talk to them both next week here on Steve Dale's Pet World. Dr. Kristen Shaw, who's very smooth, is a pain specialist at Zoetis. And we're talking about modern pain management for our pets. Dr. Shaw, you're not old enough. I'm not old enough necessarily, but veterinarians who are told me that at one point in time, we're not talking about 100 years ago, we're not even talking more than a couple of decades ago, pain really wasn't treated in dogs or cats, in part because there weren't choices, but in part because veterinarians said, just let's get it done. Better if they're in pain post-operatively, because then they're not going to move very much, and they'll heal faster. And some didn't even think pets felt pain. I'm sure you've read about this, even though this is before your time. Well, yeah, I'm very grateful that I have practiced in an era of, of pain management. But you're exactly right. It it wasn't that long ago where there were, as you mentioned, very few options for managing pain. And when when pain relief was discussed, even with pet owners, it was kind of as an afterthought. And nowadays, around the concept of surgical pain and post-surgical pain, nobody would imagine to do surgery or send an animal home without pain relief. So as the veterinary profession kind of started to embrace pain management, it really started in that 
what we call perioperative around the time of surgery pain. Now we're starting to have a much bigger focus on that chronic pain, what we call maladaptive pain, which is as significant as that perioperative pain management. You mentioned healing and we have animals that have other disease conditions. They might have other things going on. And if they're suffering from that chronic pain, that's a chronic stress for them. And they're just going to be generally less healthy if they are suffering from chronic maladaptive pain. Yeah. And we know that in human beings, people who do are more likely to be depressed. Uh, that exactly. Cytokine numbers go way, way up. And as you mentioned, then therefore they are more at risk to other disease states as well. So there's nothing good about it, but mostly it's about quality of life. And uh, too many dogs, I don't know what that number is, but probably millions may be euthanized before they need to be simply because of exasperation or I can't live with that dog because I'm on the second floor. There's no elevator. It's too big of a dog for me to carry up, you know, things like that. They're real issues. And we talked about Labrella, which is a new product, monoclonal antibody injection given by your veterinarian. But what, to me, this does in part, yes, it's amazing. It takes the pain away. But now you're able to do all of these things. I'm going to throw some of these things at you, and you can talk about them a bit. One is acupuncture. So at one point in time, I'd say that. And the veterinarian on the other end of the phone would, ha, 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 yeah, we don't have proof about that. I'm thinking you're not going to laugh. Nope, I'm not going to laugh. I, I've gone through acupuncture training myself, and I've absolutely seen the benefits of it. So acupuncture can be a big part of our multimodal therapy, for sure. What about physical therapy? So when a person has knee surgery, they're in PT for six weeks or so, uh, and or... If a, if a person has an injury, they go to physical therapy. Uh, what about our dogs or, for that matter, our cats? Well, absolutely. So this, is, this has been where I've spent a lot of my career is in the world of, of veterinary physical therapy or veterinary rehabilitation. And so there are so many things that we can do in that rehabilitation setting. When we're talking about arthritis, I want to make clear that, again, we're not going to cure or truly rehab that joint, but we can make such a difference in that animal's first and foremost quality of life. We can get them stronger. We can get them better able to do the things they need to do in their life, like going up and down stairs, like getting in and out of the car. Physical therapy or rehabilitation includes what we kind of divide into three different aspects. One is exercise. And in the in the clinic setting of a, a rehab clinic, we often use an underwater treadmill that can be very helpful for dogs that have uh, arthritic joints or maybe overweight. But we're also going to talk about land-based exercises and exercises pet owners can do at home. We're also going to use things that we call therapeutic modalities. These are things like laser therapy or shockwave therapy or pulsed electromagnetic field therapy. These are non-painful procedures while the dogs are just laying there, often very relaxed, but we can reduce some of that pain and inflammation with these these external modalities. All right, now, I'm, stopping, I'm stopping you, only slowing you down a little bit, because I want to explain some of this. So is laser therapy what we see on Star Trek? What is that? <laughs> yeah, so laser 
there's a lot of different types of laser. Laser is accurate, actually an acronym, so you can break it down. We won't get into those details of the physics, but you know, you've got a laser on your, your gar- garage door opener and a laser pointer. There are therapeutic lasers that are in a specific wavelength, meaning that it's a the infrared, usually part of the, the spectrum. So we don't see these little photons, these little packets of light energy, and they don't cause any heating necessarily. So we're not trying to cut tissue and they're not trying to be like laser beams. Usually we don't see it. We don't often feel it. So though sometimes some heat can be generated. But what what is known is that that laser energy can get absorbed by cells and that's can make those cells be more able to function at a higher level. And so if those are cells that are involved in pain or in inflammation, and they are, for lack of a better term, out of whack, we can apply this energy from the outside, this laser energy. It increases what's called ATP or the energy that cells need to function at a higher level and as a result, we can have some re- reduced pain and potentially even some improved tissue healing. All right. You mentioned something else uh, called targeted pulsed electromagnetic therapy. Uh, <laughs> briefly, what is that? I mean, I mean, it's amazing what's available now. And, and this, is, this is something in some cases people can even do at home. Absolutely. So the the pulsed electromagnetic field therapy, it's another big mouthful, and I'm not going to get into all the physics uh, behind this. But again, it is a a subsensory. So you apply this electromagnetic field, and you don't feel anything. Although I will say that I've had some patients that do tend to relax, and they seem to feel like they're feeling something. These electromagnetic fields influence the fields inside the body that, again, may be out of whack. So every cell in the body has an electrical gradient across it. And some of those electrical gradients are responsible for the flow of of what we call ions, so things like sodium and potassium, and, and they regulate the cell. In a disease state, such as arthritis or any sort of pain or swelling, these cells get, again, out of whack. The electromagnetic field can help restore that normal electromagnetic gradient across the cell membrane. And then downstream from that, we have relief of pain. And the the PEMF or P-E-M-F, that can be used at home. There's a few different ways to do that. One is the Assisi loop. Yep. And I've used that um, for my own dog. I mentioned my French bulldog. She had hip arthritis and back pain. I had an Assisi loop at home that I would use on her. Hmm. Uh, and the same here, by the way, as far as the Assisi loop, I've used it and have found positive results with our mm-hmm. uh, 15-year-old dog. How about this modality? Are you ready? I'm ready. Swimming. swimming swimming is a great one so whether it is purely swimming or it's an underwater treadmill but swimming is a great great form of exercise for dogs with arthritis because it takes all of that weight off their joints it's truly low impact but it gets them moving those joints we know that moving the the limbs through that motion helps the joint fluid move around the joint. It helps build up the muscle around the joints and it's going to help relieve some of that pain. So swimming, I'm a huge, huge fan of swimming. But maybe not for pugs, unless it's controlled. (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, 
we want to make sure that it's a safe environment. I trained in Florida and I did not recommend that my patients go swimming in Florida because there's alligators. But for <laughs> places <laughs> places that there's no alligators <laughs> or there's pools, swimming can be a great option. All right. And how about I have one more for you. Actually, if we had time, I'd have like 25 more. But that is this walking. Walking as boring as it may sound, that is the foundation of all of our exercise. It's going for walks. You don't need any fancy tools. You don't need any fancy exercise equipment. You don't even need a pool or a lake. Just taking your dog for a walk is one of the best things that you can do. There's actually studies that show that dogs that walk for a longer period of time do better than dogs that walk for a shorter period of time. However, it's really important to gradually build up that length of the walk. And during the summer and the hot weather, making sure that you're taking your dog, especially if it's a pug or a French bulldog, taking them out in the cooler parts of the day, making sure that they're not getting overheated. But just going for regular walks is one of the best things that we can be doing. And it's one of the best things you could be doing as far as enriching your dog's life, uh, because your dog will get the 411 sniffing everything around. What's going on in the community will know more than you know just by its nose, you know. So that's that's great for dogs. Dogs love that sort of thing, of course. And there have been studies done that say cognitive dysfunction is less likely to happen in dogs who exercise regularly. So it's kind of all tied into one another, Dr. Shaw. It sure is. And, and you know, along those lines, taking your dog on a different route. So yes. making sure that yep. they are stimulated in different ways. That's an important part of it. Yep, I agree. Dr. Kristen Shaw, pain specialist at Zoetis. What a great opportunity to learn a lot. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much for having me here, Steve. She is the president of Pet Sitters International, Beth Stoltz-Hairston. I begin here, Beth. What is Pet Sitters International? Pet Sitters International is the world's largest educational association for professional pet sitting and dog walking businesses. So we give our members access to the business credentials and continuing education they need to offer the best possible pet care. You know, with the holidays coming up just around the corner, this seems to be a time, I'm guessing, that is incredibly busy for people who do what you do. Absolutely. While pet sitters are busy year-round, the holidays, uh, their schedules tend to fill up very quickly. Yeah, uh, and that is because so many people go away. Now, one option is to take the dog or the cat with you, and I'm going to talk about cats in a moment. Another option is to board that dog, but a lot of board, a lot of boarding facilities don't take cats in the first place, and a lot of dogs have no pre-existing experience with boarding facilities, or maybe you don't love the idea of boarding a dog. Is all of that where you come in? Absolutely. Of course, we tell pet parents, you know your pet best, but what we find is that a lot of pets are much more comfortable being able to stay in their own home. And so by having a pet sitter that can come to your home and keep your pet on their regular routine in their comfortable home environment, uh, that has so many positive uh, benefits for the pet. I'll tell you what drives me crazy. People go away for a week, maybe even longer, and they say, oh, the cat or cats, because most people don't have a cat. They have what I think the average is 2.3 cats. So the the cats are out, and they say they'll be fine. We're, we're leaving food out, and we're leaving water out. Uh, 
and we'll even leave some toys out. Everything will be okay. I argue, no way. Every, now, for 24 hours, sure, maybe. But anything over that, frankly, I have concerns. Uh, what do you think? Absolutely agree. Um, for the professional pet sitting industry, the standard is, uh, for cats particularly, they should need at least one visit per day. You never know what could go wrong, whether it's a health issue, like a urinary tract issue that needs to be caught early, or we actually had a situation we heard from a pet parent where their cat was um, behind the dryer and washing machine, mm. got that cord loose, and the home flooded. Uh, and so those types of things can happen uh, when our pets are left um, unattended for you know even a short amount of time. Yeah, absolutely true. And I would argue that cats always need, yes, always is the right word, actually. They do need human companionship. So even if there are other cats in the house, they still need a person there. Interactive play is really important. So taking that wand toy or whatever it might be, fishing pole type toy, uh, to play with the cat. And that is something else Pet sitters are really good at and generally enjoy. How can you not enjoy playing with a cat or cats or dog or dogs? Exactly. That enrichment is so important for pets and and cats as well. And so we find that we have um, pet parents now who, again, want pet sitters uh, when they travel. But also we have some pet parents who contact our members and just schedule cat enrichment visits because they're realizing how important that is. You know, for some parts of the country, as the weather gets cold and snowy, And sometimes, for some people, downright dangerous to go out. The dog still needs to go out and may need a walk as well, particularly if it's a young dog. So is that an area, at this time of year especially, that, okay, this is a niche we can also fill? Absolutely. Pet sitters and dog walkers can be used for so many reasons, not just when you're traveling. And so the uh, the, uh, inclement weather that you mentioned is one of those examples. Uh, If a pet parent is unable to walk their dog because of the weather or maybe a recent hospital stay or an injury, uh, that is a service that pet sitters and dog walkers can help provide. Yeah, and I bet that happens all the time, actually, and you're right, uh, regarding hospital stay, injury, that kind of thing. That's a very, very good point. Uh, How can people learn more about Pet Sitters International. If you are interested in becoming a pet sitter or finding a pet sitter, you can visit the Pet Sitters International website at PetSit.com. PetSit.com. Sounds great. Beth Stoltz, Harrison, president of Pet Sitters International. Thank you so much. Thank you. You know, they say they fight like cats and dogs. Well, not always. Here's a Siberian Husky who's a rock star in part because the dog's name is Brett Michaels, at a shelter in Nebraska. And then here's what happens. Uh, Three approximately four-week-old kittens arrive at the shelter with fleas, too many fleas, and they have anemia. One kitten in particular, the situation was dire because she lost so much blood. So the shelter did not have any cat blood. So they turned to a dog. Now, that's not frequently done, but it's possible to do. It's happened before. And guess what? This husky, a sweet husky with one blue eye, one brown eye, saves the kitten's life. It worked! The transfusion truly worked. A total success. The kitten rallied, is about to be adopted out. Well, meanwhile, the dog, named Brett Michaels, gets adopted by Brett Michaels, Brett Michaels actually saw the story somehow in social media. And he said, I've got to have this dog. I mean, here's the truth about cat and dog, cats and dogs, by the way. 
Currently, in America, about 25% of people who have a cat, or cats, have at least one dog. That's a quarter of the people. They must be getting along, and vice versa, of course. People who have at least one dog probably have, or at least 25% of them, have a cat or cats in their household as well. And, you know, peacekeepers aren't needed to be called in. For In fact, I would suggest if you add a cat into the home with, say, two cats, or add a dog into a home with two cats, unless those two cats have had a previous bad experience with, the, with a dog, probably it's easier to add the dog than another cat. We'll talk to you next week bright and early on WGN.